Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, and thanks for downloading the first series of Joining the Dots. Joining the Dots is a podcast from the makers of Huck Magazine, brought to you in association with size. In this second and final part of our season finale, photographer Guy Martin takes us on a journey from the feel-good protests of the Arab Spring to hand-to-hand fighting on the streets of Misrata. In 2011, while travelling with Libyan rebel fighters, they came under mortar attack from Colonel Gaddafi's forces. The attack would leave Guy mortally wounded and chained forever. Across these two episodes, Guy traces the movement of his life as a surf photographer to a harder-edged existence as a witness to war. This journey nearly cost Guy his life, but it also led him to a fruitful third act as a photographer. In this second and final part of our season finale, our host Don Lett sat down with him and discovers how his experience as a war photographer in Libya led to a very different way of looking at what he does. There's that thing that you know that if you're heading into the unknown, there's, there's you know, there's known knowns and there's unknown knowns and unknown knowns. And, but, the, but you were taking in some way that risk together to get into this town uh, to do it. And it's, it's funny thinking about now, about that, that, that dynamic and those photographers that were with us at that time and the various reasons we had maybe for going when we did. Um, but I think, it, yeah, it is worth mentioning that, the, you know, the, the group of photographers that did go, there were two people there um, that I had, you know, I'd got to know very well. One of them was a guy called Chris Hondros, a very well-known photojournalist who worked for, for, for Getty, was um, very, very well-known for kind of taking amazing pictures um, um, in the Gulf War, in the Second Gulf War, in um, Liberia. In these amazing, you know, he was the guy. He was the guy that would go to these places and photograph and be on the front lines of things. This was his. This was his thing. And then there was um, another group of us: Michael, um, Guillermo, um, and uh, a woman called Katie, and another photographer called Tim Hetherington. And Tim was somebody that I knew from London, from here. It was. Um, uh, it was the loose connection. When when I graduated, I, I moved to London, moved to Brixton. And uh, got a job at a gallery in East London, um, a host gallery it was called then. And the little community, I did some like I painted the I painted the floors and the ceilings of this gallery and stuff just to like kind of wanted to hang out with photographers and get some work experience. And Tim and the owner at that time, John, uh, knew each other, and he would come into the office 
um, at that time in the mid 2000s. And he would show us this work that he was doing from Afghanistan, which was kind of like nothing I'd ever seen before. And it was like no war photography I'd ever seen before. It was like he was up on a mountain in Afghanistan, but he was photographing dudes like wrestling with each other about like bromance that happens in armies, you know, um, the boredom, the, uh, the kind of the machismo of it and said that that's about actually what war is about. It's about men kind of finding solace and companionship and, and kind of getting shot at together and having fun together. And that's why, you know, that's it. So to see kind of stuff like this now that I'm showing Don in this book was, you know, mind blowing. And, and, you know, and I don't know, we, we got talking and stuff, but I always remember when I, when after him doing this, um, a lot of the, the, the times that he was, he was photographing or, or finishing this work and then with Liberia work, he would, um, he often said he would never do it again. Like that was it. And I remember the first, when, when he saw me in Libya, we met on this road in Eastern Libya and he kind of set himself apart from other people there anyway. He was well liked, but he, like just the most like humbling thing you know, I was like this kind of his 20th, it was like Tim Hetherington. And he kind of came over, made an effort of saying, hi, I've seen your work, what you've done. Incredible work. Love what you're doing. Can I travel with you? Can I ride with you? And to have like, you know, a guy that's like 15, 16, 17 years older than you, first thing say, you know, and he's like one world president and stuff, say, you know, I've seen what you've been doing. I'm like, Jesus Christ. You've yeah. arrived. You know, I was like, wow, okay. Uh, so he was on that boat as well. And it was... Um, weird for us, for these two. I'm not weird, maybe for Chris, but um, you know, I think that there's part of there's something apart. Like Tim, um, no matter how many things he'd seen before, there was like he felt like all of us, like he was rolling back the years and being this young photographer again, of going off into the world and being uninhibited by embeds and things. And he was with us. And he was a huge reassuring presence to have around. I always remember he would use, if we were like traveling in these, in these cars in Misrata, he would be the guy, like not everybody wanted to ride in the front seat, right? Because you just, yeah. you're just going around, <clears throat> there's like, you know, you just don't want to be there. He would just always go in the front seat. Just like take the front seat and like, all right. But I anyway, guess, and I guess they don't use right. the term riding shotgun. No, <laughs> exactly, right? That's it. Yeah, but he would be that guy. And I, you know, yeah. So anyway, so we were hanging out with them in 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 Misrata, and um, we finally got there from this from this uh, from this journey that we took overnight on this boat, and we arrived in Misrata. And sure enough, these Libyan guys that greeted us on the docks were hospitable. Picked us up in their Toyota Hiluxes, these these cruisers, you know, these pickup trucks that you see yeah you see in movies, and drove us out to this to this house, this beautiful kind of three, four-story house in Misrata that was kind of um, a beautiful house on the Med, you know? It was fantastic. But the thing that, you, that instantly separated anything from where, you know, Misrata was to where we were before was that constant thud of bombs falling, like rockets being fired from a very long, long way away and landing close, like these thuds that they make. And instantly seeing the faces and the attitudes of the fighters that we were with, these men looked as though they'd been at a siege for 40, 50, 60 days. They were quiet, reserved, you know, and that first night 
those thuds of like rockets of bombs landing closer and closer and the windows shaking you know and and that's something that does i don't i don't think maybe tim and chris felt it differently but for me that was like that was like okay this is fucking serious now and on that first morning you know um that first morning the this guy like this guy remember this young guy had camo pants on leather jacket a kind of Che Guevara red beret but he kind of came in and was like right let's go as if to say right man up now now's your time so you pile into this you know into this Hilux and he, he drive us he drove us out to a front line like drive us straight out to this front line to this alleyway where on the other side of the road is uh you know snipers doing the whole thing running through alleyways where there's shots coming down you have to kind of wait five seconds run sprint to the other black side. hawk down yeah like so this my only thing. point of reference no, to go what for, you're saying go for it no, no, no because the similarities yeah. were were there but being instantly in a town that you weren't familiar with you were kind of familiar like i don't know like when you go on you're familiar with a little town you know where before yeah, now you're coming without, without the bullets without thing yeah. now there was the destruction was immense like everywhere you could see this stuff and it was a serious front line and so we just drove around for three or four days witnessing these these front lines and because at that point you are putting your faith in this random person that you've met at the dead of night with a toyota you're trusting him and he can't speak great english but you're entrusting in this person that he knows the city well enough not to take us down that kind of where it used to be enemy you know good guy territory yeah. yesterday but overnight it's suddenly bad, baddie territory, and then you, and then, and then it's curtains. So, yeah. So we did that for a while, and then on the morning of um, April twentieth, um, it had been a, a really, really fierce um, evening of of bombardments. Bombardments. The the bombs really did feel as though they were landing very close. Um, the same guy came in again and said, "There's been a major breakthrough where we where we kind of drove up to this T junction the day before." Um, We've now cleared it. This this one massive dual carriageway street, like Oxford Street, was now clear because you couldn't previously step into Oxford Street or the version of a Tripoli Street. You were kind of on the side, and so we're like, okay. And there was real kind of like fervor in his voice, like he was happy. You know, he was happy that they pushed and made some ground. <laughs> and that morning, I just, you know, the the cinematic references to like Mad Max are. Like you can make them, but I remember just like going past things that I knew we hadn't driven past the day before because that was there was a sniper there, and we were just like riding through them, and I was just like looking around, just going like this, oh my god! And it was still eerie, quiet. But as soon as we came across this T junction, chaos that I don't think anybody could have seen you. There was like hundreds of rebels, armed rebels, out and firing everywhere into the into the air, into firing like sustained automatic rifle fire into a burning building on the third floor and at the same time a guy behind you was shooting into the basement on the basement on the street opposite there was like fire pouring out of and and this was like this with the black smoke billowing from these buildings land rovers guys that you know made homemade like put an anti-aircraft gun welded it onto the back of a toyota and are firing an anti-aircraft gun into a building that you know and you, it, i remember being you know and these guys you know I, I don't think their priority was really us to be quite honest i remember being that you know on top of a little ledge like this where the basement of a window was underneath just like standing there just going what 
you know, but still photographing. And then the guy just comes up with like, he's probably standing where, where like two or three meters away and just starts firing up a machine gun like beneath my feet, you know, like the, as if there was somebody still in that basement. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was just chaos. It was really just chaos. Um, and, um, but we moved through that morning um, to rescue, the rebels wanted to rescue a family that were kind of stuck beyond the front lines. And there's always something in a, you might have seen it in coverage of, you know, of, of, of Syria or Iraq on the news and stuff. When you're ever at the point where like the soldier is like taking down one flag and putting it up with their flag, you know that you might be a little bit too far kind of on the front line. You know, if you're, <laughs> if you're standing next to the guy that's taking a flag down, you know, and victory hasn't been declared, you know, you might have... Jumping the gun a bit. Jumping the gun. No, so pun, we were, no pun intended. Yeah, we were, we were there that morning. And I, I remember being in the middle of a four-lane highway that was, you know, burnt out cars, all the rest of it. It was myself, Tim and Chris, which were, which were there. And we were like next to the guy that was taking down the flag, you know. And I didn't know, I was just like, there's not a lot of cover here. I remember being on my hands and knees on a four-lane highway watching this guy take this flag down. And I was like, this, I know enough to know that I shouldn't be here right now, you know? But, you know, what do you do? I, I mean... Your comrades were there, uh, yeah. so... Yeah, so we were just going from these houses to houses with these rebels that were kind of shouting in and kind of saying, is anybody here? Do we need to rescue you? Whatever. We finally found, you know, we went house to house and, uh, you know, this, this family was trapped. And uh, these kind of rebels went in um, to to rescue this woman, her husband, and these small children. And we got there, and then soon enough, like five minutes later, another, um, you know, four or five kind of trucks came in to help this family out. And at that moment, when this family came out from a from a drive from a from a road like a normal road, like the house you're living in, and kind of suburban London, to the other end of the road, this machine gun fire just opened up from somewhere, and just like kind of sprayed this kind of group that we were with. Miraculously, it didn't hit us. Um, and yeah, sure enough, everybody just started running down this one way kind of thing. And I, almost at that point, actually, I remember getting my head knocked off. This guy who had a machine gun that he couldn't hold, it was like from, it was used to shooting down planes. Just, I was running next to him with bullets whizzing past your, your head. And you know bullets are close when they make this, this is, uh, like a bee noise. You know when they're kind of going out, they make a hollower noise, but when they're coming in, they make like a bee, like a zip, zip, and you know. If you can hear that noise, you know it's just, it's very, very close to where you are. And he just kind of turned around, this guy turned around and just didn't see me was there, but just fired this like thing. And it just, it basically, this thing just went like right past my ear. This thing, this gun, like, this didn't know what he was doing with it. And I was running, I didn't know where I was running until I was just running down the end. It could have got blown to pieces at that point. And then in this... Uh, Toyota kind of next to me was uh, Tim and Chris kind of laughing and just going, where are, you, where are you running? Do you want to jump in here now? And I remember jumping into the front window of this Toyota and kind of my head like landing on like the gear stick and like Tim and Chris's crotch and just like driving out of this alleyway with like guns, like, like bullets zipping past my ass. I was just like, I'm sh like, at that point I was like, I'm convinced I'm going to get shot in the ass. You know, it was ridiculous. It was completely ridiculous, but it was like, anyway, but this was the events of that morning. And, you know, things went on and then we went into this house, into this building that um, 
where I mean this is kind of yes, yeah, coming to the end. It's a bit of a long story, so but it's a long, it's <laughs> yeah, a long no, story. It's a, it's a long for story, good but, but the the morning, the end of the morning was coming. There was still this one house uh, to clear of Gaddafi kind of forces, and uh, um, uh, the enemy was seemingly in this room on the second floor, and we kind of myself along with the photographers that were with us. Um, and the rebels were just piling into this building to try and clear this one room of this, seemed like these soldiers. And it is the still to this day, like I think, uh, the closest fought combat um, between two that generally you don't throw grenades into other rooms if you're still in the in hallway. Proximity. Like it's a bad thing to do, but here's this is what's happening to try and get these things out. And, yeah, I, you know, just being, I remember being in this, in this room with the, this office room, this admin building, there was a computer with an empty chair in the window, there was the, the rebel fighter kind of standing by it, pointing his gun out the window, empty wooden ammunition boxes all spent around us, and just rebels in their Nikes and their gun belts, throwing grenades, fireworks, balls of like tire, tire balls of fire, into the next room and just trying to clear this room. And uh, I remember very clearly there was a moment when uh, Tim kind of, um, a couple of us were in this side room with this ammo boxes and this weirdly, this, this vase of fake flowers in the corner, this like pink and yellow ornate vase that was perfectly still standing upright with its kind of fake flowers pointing out but with like bullet holes around it as if it, as if at some point during that morning it had fallen off and somebody had put it back up. But, that's a side point. And then a grenade came out onto the stairwell and Tim kind of like, you know, kind of threw us, like bear hugged us and threw us onto the ground and kind of stayed on top of us as this thing like bounced down the stairs and exploded. It was just like, yeah, it was amazing. But, um, but yeah, so we, 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 uh, we carried on hanging out with this, these, these rebels that wanted to clear this room. Eventually, it, it did, um, it got cleared. Um, the fighting kind of stopped. The guns fell silent. And then it was just like lunchtime. So we just piled back into this, um, into the back, into Toyota's, and drove around where we thought was that front line, this building that had been blown to pieces, and drove back through the sandy lanes of the city of Misrata and went back and... and and had lunch, had a tuna, tuna sandwich and a boiled egg. And I thought like at that time, like I was just like, I, I have no big frame of reference compared to other, you know, particularly to Tim and Chris who are in their forties, um, to kind of uh, compare that to. But I do remember Chris was like, that is hands down the craziest morning that I've ever witnessed in my career as a kind of combat photographer. And like for me, that was, that was good enough. I, I was just like, well, if he's saying that, I have no desire to see anything more to that magnitude again. Like, I was completely done, you know? It was just, like, it was just too much. And then um, at some point in that afternoon, the very charismatic, kind of slightly older kind of commander of that force that we were with in the morning wanted to go back out to that front line and wanted to go back out and kind of... I guess, hold a position, check the, the, the you know, Job's the done. defense, the job was done. And I remember do not wanting to go out that, again that afternoon. I was like, I'll go down to the dock. Apparently there's an aid ship arriving. 
I'll go to the hospital, like, I'll stay here. Anything but. but. Anything but. But because of group dynamic, right? Uh, not wanting to appear to not be a wimp. Not wanting to appear to be a wimp. Because one of us who was in the group didn't see that this morning, that morning, I think felt jealous and felt like, not jealous, that's, no, that's unfair, or hadn't witnessed what we'd come back and witnessed. And when you take off your bulletproof vest from that morning, I can imagine how it have seen, and your chest is puffed, and you're all talking about that that was the craziest thing since the Soviets took Berlin. You know, if I'd missed it, I would have wanted to have gone and done and seen something, you know? Um, I mean, there were uh, oh, lots of other kind of w little funny group dynamics in that, as there would be in anyone, but... The, 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 the weird thing for me about that, that afternoon going back out again is that Tim was the one that wanted to go back out. Tim was saying that, you know, because of his experience in past conflicts, hooking up early with a, with a general, with a rogue kind of commander, a guy that was, for what we thought at that time, you know, we'd be the first ones into Tripoli. You know, we would be that group of journalists. Everyone else is stuck, didn't take the boat. You know, everyone else is stuck in, in the east of the country. We were there with this guy, with this guy, this general, that seemingly had command and respect of his men and could put up a good fight. In Tim's eyes, that was, that was important. And, you know, who am I to argue with that, that, that idea? But I just remember just like... A bad feeling. Bad feeling, man. And um, we drove back to where we'd been that morning and, uh, and it was dead silent. Like dead silent in a way where the morning was chaos sometimes there's a certain comfort in chaos a little bit in the fact that maybe if you, you could just you know stand behind a wall take cover behind somewhere you know what's going on now it was it's just like eerie silence fuck man this place is weird now you know and seeing elements of the enemy left behind like their uniform like army green uniforms were taken off helmets supplies of their food of their lunch of what they'd just eaten you know the occasional kind of, you know, it was weird. Like as if someone had left in a hurry or maybe they were, it, like someone was still there, you know? And uh, I just remember just feeling deeply uncomfortable, um, like tight, stressed. I was saying to Chris, man, I was like, mate, I do not, what's the point? Like kind of what is the point that's been here? Like they're not firing guns anymore. Where are the pictures? You know, what is there? What are we doing here? You know? Uh, but, like in that moment, in that in those minutes that we were there back on that thing, Tim was was like something. Tim was driven by something else. I don't know. He was just uh, like a different person, almost. You know. And uh, remember walking back back to where that building was, where the grenade was being dropped down the stairs and stuff, and almost back just past the the entranceway to that building. It was like a tire um, workshop, like a tire workshop is where I kind of um, kind of hid in the morning, kind of behind like a low wall with a kind of perspex awning over it. Lots of um, um, uh, kind of H-shaped, um, it was having some work done on the walls, so some scaffolding around. And um, I remember taking time out on that earlier in the, in the day. Uh, myself and Chris were walking down this this pavement and we got to this kind of tire workshop and we we're both saying like how do we get out of here you know let's just let's just go let's go somewhere else and we kind of asked around where where Tim was and we were the front Chris and I were at the front of the group 
there were some other photographers and some radio reporters behind us. And we looked around um, and Tim came like sprinting up past us on our right, like head down. Don't know where he was running to, but he was just running. Um, and then at that point, uh, this humongous explosion happened uh, seemingly right next to us. And like, you know, like before, you, you get used to sounds of how close a rocket is by the sound that it makes. It makes a zipping or a bee stinging noise. You know it's close or it's overhead. Even rockets have a similar kind of noise, but bigger. And so this time I heard nothing. And uh, just remember falling to the, uh, falling to the floor and just holding my, uh, holding my stomach straight, straight away. Um, obviously this noise, this pinging, this, 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 an explosion, man. It was smoke and heat and white. And uh, it's just like, you know, it's not like in the movies, people don't fly through the air. When this thing, uh, explosion landed, uh, it's just like, it's just like somebody just cuts your legs off. You just literally just drop. And um, I remember falling, yeah, falling down, um, hitting the deck and just a pain, like I can't really, yeah, experience just this immense, a pain so, so much that it's a like a wind, like it takes your breath away. You can't breathe. You can't talk. You just know instantly then that that you're in that you're in deep stum. I think actually I do remember like there was a brief kind of maybe the shock of it is you kind of fall down and then something kind of forced me up where I think I kind of stumbled two or three paces and collapsed into um, into that scaffolding that I was with uh, standing next to earlier. Um, and I just remember thinking I got to get out of here or something, but that resistance soon went and I just kind of fell back. Um, began to hear things again, began to hear more chaos of like uh, sound or uh, like of sand or dust settling of people behind me saying that they're shot. And I just remember being unable to speak, like, like kind of thinking, has anybody seen me? And uh, I kind of, yeah, clearly had been in, uh, I'd, you know, Clearly hurt. I knew I was bleeding, and I was bleeding heavily. I just couldn't do anything. And uh, the next thing I remember, I was being pulled into the back of a a, um, uh, a truck, the Toyota truck, but it was full of dead bodies. Like I remember, and I remember waking up then, and I think making a sound because I think that they thought that I was dead, so I was in that truck, you know. I don't know how I did it, but I did. And then I picked up by, by the very same charismatic motherfucker that picked us up at the port, this Che Guevara lookalike with a red thing. He had my camera around his neck, I remember, at that point. And I remember sitting in the back of this thing, sitting, being held, being hugged by this other man who was like holding my stomach really, really hard, like really hard. And I remember just drifting in and out of consciousness, looking at this, this guy with my camera around his neck, knowing how far it was to the hospital as well. And for like the first time, like thinking like the, like I knew how, like I knew how bad that I was. And just thinking that like, like you know, just like nobody around here knows first aid. 
like, that's it, I'm gone. And I just managed to like, I don't know, man, I just remember staying awake long enough. I got into this, um, like kind of this tent outside, um, some people saying some stuff to me or whatever, and then just being put on the, the funny thing is, it's like when that happens at that, at that stage, I always remember, like, I always remember thinking at that time, like I was in one of my own pictures because I knew exactly how they treated the injured or how, you know, dead bodies were like prepared for burial. You know, like I knew, like it was just like, I, kn I know how this is going to end. Like I knew, it was weird, you have, you begin to, you know, I think that was it, man. I think I, I knew I was on the way out. Your, your mind like separates from yourself and you start seeing yourself that in the third body, person. Yeah. And I remember just being like staying alive, like, well, being around long enough for this, you know, for these, do for these doctors and nurses in this white coat to say something like, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. And then, and then just go in. And um, and then I woke up, like, I don't know, it was a long time. I don't know many of the details still around the after thing of this. I chose not to kind of know about it. Um, but uh, I do remember, obviously, I woke up um, in that hospital with, um, of not being able to walk, of lost all the feeling down the left-hand side of my body, having this huge scar from there, like from the middle of my chest down to uh, my groin and um, of the hospital window shaking with the sound of bombs kind of landing outside it. And uh, of, yeah, drifting in and out of consciousness, I developed a whole host of problems after that, hypothermia. I woke up, uh, I've never told this to anyone, but I woke up um, from that operation still under general anaesthetic because they didn't have time to weigh me. So they got the dosage wrong. Guess it. And so it was like being... If you have an operation on the NHS, they tell you in a little booklet about what it's going to be like if you do wake up under... It's like drowning or being buried alive. Like your, your tongue is all back. In anyway. um, uh, and then I just remember being in that hospital with those... Uh, with those... With those... Uh, obviously, a lot of Libyan... Um, injured and dying and uh, and being right okay how do I get out of this now so eventually I did get out of that um, yeah eventually did get out of that and um, found myself back in the UK and um, 18 months later um, after picking up the pieces and, and getting back and learning how to walk again of coming to terms with the idea or the thought that that um, either I continue with this photography or I just jack it in completely. That something that I loved and cared for so much uh, almost cost me my life. It's cost the life of two people that were with me that day and still thinking about why I'm here and they're not. Or, um, yeah, I, I jack it in and I whatever, start again, it's doing something else. And um, I figured that if I'd given so much that I kind of, and that I just had more, one more thing that I wanted to do, that if I could just say something else, say something a little bit more about that part of the world that I, I think had almost taken everything away from me, that I could like lay those de demons to rest. And so I, 
I moved to Istanbul and eventually what became is the project The Parallel State. Like, yeah. I feel we all yeah. Need, yeah. No. Fucking. Yeah. Fucking hell. I was like, I'm not being funny. Don't take this the wrong way. I was like, why did I fucking ask him about this? Oh man, you've just taken me through a whole fucking movie. You know, like, I don't want to make light of it. No, it's that's well, intense. In no. <laughs> fucking you hell. Asked. You asked. <laughs> oh, yeah. You asked. Yeah. No, dude, you know, yeah. oh, man, I told yeah. you I was nervous about speaking this dude because it makes everything I've ever done in my life like shit. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, just give me a minute, man. Yeah. yeah. How old are you? 26. Yeah. Yeah. 27. Yeah. Yeah. And your memory, your detail, the vase. Yeah. Yeah. The book, have yeah. you got. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, you got the picture of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess you're obviously going to... You, you just told me a whole book. There was a whole script. Yeah, yeah. The guy, yeah. I mean, the whole camaraderie mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. There's something horrible I'm going to ask you, but yeah. it's just for sake no, of this no. podcast. Yeah. But you can... But the thing is, like, I don't mind... To, because in during that recovery process, like, not wanting to be the guy that had failed marriages and kids all over the place, not wanting to be that guy, of knowing enough about the industry or about myself to know that this shouldn't be a thing. You know, I went and saw, like, I saw, like, a specialist, like, a woman that deals in PTSD and stuff, and she did this kind of hypnosis thing, this... Um, Retro thing. Yeah. And what that did was that basically enabled and separated me from the incident. It, like, it parts, like, it, like, categorizes part of the brain where you can look at a traumatic event. She says that, like, it's so often that, you know, it's rare that I do this on, like people repeat it from war most often it's like normal stuff like car injuries where there's a blame that people associate an, an, an injury yeah. with a blame of a driver that's shunned in the back of them yeah. so it basically makes and then those people can have very grumpy and like animosity or, or fears and she's, so we did we worked through this and obviously yeah, for like weeks i was just in an emotional like crying my eyes out on the sofa at home uh but what it did do after it was it basically co compartmentalized that so event deal with it to be able to kind of come above it and speak about it. And there's still elements that I still do get really, you know, obviously very kind of sad about, but it made that to be able to kind of process it. So I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't talk no, about it if I could guilty. I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't feel as though that I could. But I'm going to push question. this point yeah. only because I think it's very important yeah. to you, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that in that story that you've told, yeah. it was very detailed. Yeah. And it's up to you if you're leaving. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to yeah, mention yeah. that you said, oh, I lost two friends. Yeah. Which kind of skipped over the impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, yeah. You know, of what that... Yeah, I, I think... Tell me the moment that you found out that you'd lost your two friends and uh, the impact that had on you. I knew, I knew that happened in the days uh, when I woke up um, in, the, in the hospital in, in Libya. I remember drifting in and out of consciousness and um, uh, somebody... I think it was somebody, uh, uh, a journalist from uh, from the Wall Street Journal, um, a guy called Charles who was with me, um, who said very bluntly or matter-of-factly without emotion, like, Tim and Chris didn't make it or something like that. I knew that at that point, before the explosion, I knew where Tim was and I knew where Chris was in proximity to where I was standing, which was half a metre apart in like kind of like a triangle. So I knew... I certainly didn't see them, and I certainly remember didn't being kind of comforted by them in the bits before I went in for this operation. So I think my my brain had kind of 
kind Thank of you. prepared my prepared me for that. And so that was I remember just being told that, you know. Um I'm sure I think people didn't want to tell me because of where I was and then there was obviously the the added logistical problem of um not only getting me out to where I needed to have further treatment but also a logistical thing of getting their bodies out as well. Um so that kind of stuff there's people that can speak on that um, that know about it far more than I do because I've checked like that I don't want to know about. Um, but I do remember some of the other photographers um, who would see me, it seemed like ages, maybe four, maybe three, four, five days later, who I hadn't seen since that explosion came in and just kind of burst into tears and, you know, started hugging me and saying that, you know, Tim and Chris didn't make it, Tim and Chris didn't make it. And I was like, you know, I know. Uh, but I think it's the mind works in funny ways, man, at that point, you know, and it's only obviously since the, the passing of, you're, you're in, you're in a survival mode. Your body does go into a survival mode at some point, you know, um, and it has to kind of focus on the things that it has to focus on to get better. Um, but it was only their, the, the, um, the knowledge of their, their passing, what they had kind of, um, done in their careers why they were there at that point in in Libya at that point um and one thing that i think right re, like kind of the the certainly for me one of the bigger reasons for me wanting to carry on with photography it was in a way a slight kind of hat tip to to Tim in Libya in that stage because Tim in Libya at that stage did see something that i thought was important that was actually the nucleus for this next body of work and he did see the the performance and the cinema in men that have no idea how to fire a gun referencing film referencing the internet to want to look how to be a rebel soldier because of the world's media was there and we talked about that while he was still around in Libya and Syria saying did you see that or he was drawn to things that I would see, but I was just not thinking in that way. I would see every night in the east of the country, the rebels obviously go out, get their asses handed to them, you know, by some Gaddafi soldiers, come back and then want to stand in front of the cameras at Al Jazeera and CNN. They would roll down big white bed sheets and project Al Jazeera that night to see if they could see themselves on TV. And we did talk about that. That was something that he had started to see. The, the regular people with their own camera phones Facebooking a revolution. And for me, that was a, a, a large kind of inspiration for me to want to carry on something that was there way in a different way. And that's, how the, and that's how the turkey thing happened. So th when I think about it, that's what gets me kind of like thinking about what, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean bad analogy but it seems no. that there was some kind of silver lining to what was a mm -hmm. very dark cloud yeah. mm -hmm. how did this affect what you did and what you do yeah it's a it's a difficult one and i think it's like it's it's one of those things that i'm still kind of uh wrestling with now because what we do or what i did was never supposed to be or the things that you don't talk about in this so you're never supposed to really talk about yourself um to, to anyone else maybe apart from your t closest colleagues but it's you're always in service um 
to other people. I always get told that, you know, as a journalism, there's a journalism lecturer that said that journalism is the finest um, uh, kind of profession because you're providing a service. It's not a job, it's a service. So to look on it like that. So you're providing a service that is telling um, the world about these stories, about other people. You shouldn't be a priority in this story. It's not about you, it's about the people in your pictures. If it comes about you, then that's something different. So it's right, I, 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 you know, the people in your photographs, the, the humanity that you show, the way that you work, the sympathy, the voice to the voiceless, all of these ideas um, are the very kind of core of what I do. It's just that it's photography, it's not, um, you know, um, it's not another thing. And so when something like that happened, there's parts of, you know, my thinking or there's parts of my kind of dealing with stuff that suddenly becomes really selfish, suddenly becomes that, uh, why now? Why me? Like, it's in my mid-twenties. I was making the best work that I ever wanted to make. Being so outrageous and so kind of ego-driven to say that was my, or even to say or think that that was my revolution. That's what I wanted to do. That was me. That was in a perverse sort of way, having the time of your life. And then that thing happened in my mid-twenties, where now I'm forced to deal with these kind of ideas about, well, what next? Like, I could quite happily go through the next, you know, people and many successful photographers, the photographers that I admired and respected and have worked through their whole careers, photographing wars and revolutions and have books and have shows and have all this kind of stuff. You know, fine, if you get, kicked in the ass when you're old. You can hang up your camera and say, you know, I had a good innings, I'd be all right with that. But that thing about what to do next was confronted to me at, in my mid-twenties. And it's a really hard pill to swallow because you can say you can, be, you can be equally selfish and you can say, well, you would, I think you would have to be a certain kind of special individual if you could not see the stress and the strain that that put on your family and the people and the loved ones close to you to just kind of dismiss shrug that, off. shrug it off and go to the next place and work as you had before. And I think, I don't, I don't personally know anybody that do that, but I, I do know of the mentality and what that might weigh in a way that you might uh, find refuge in hanging out with your old friends again, feel part of this community, this club. Uh, but, I just knew that that moment was just so ginormous that I had to find another way uh, back into back into it. Um, one of the one of the positives, like taking the positive, one of the positive things that did come out of that was that one of um, Tim's uh, best friends, the author Sebastian Junger, wrote *The Perfect Storm* of that fame. Um, he started up a, a kind of um, a medical training, an emergency medical response for journalists. For free of charge, you would get like a week's course in how to plug a bullet hole wound, apply a tourniquet, that type of stuff. And it is thought by many people that were around on that, that day that if anybody, including the rebels, had uh, basic medical knowledge, that uh, Tim um, and Chris would still be with us today. So, him starting this program that enabled um, a t hopefully another generation to 
to go into these situations far more equipped than what we were with, that's a positive. So there were positive things that were kind of coming, or things that I could find positivity in, Some something into it, yeah. And so um, the one way for me, man, was to, was to basically deal with and try and put the demons uh, at rest and to actually acknowledge, and I think this is like the hardest, one of the hardest things, but I haven't like kind of found, I think everybody understands it when I say it, is that um, to acknowledge that photography up to that point of the, the afternoon of April 20th, 2011, to acknowledge and say that photography, whatever you want to label it, photojournalism, possibly documentary, whatever, uh, but photography had been using me up to that point and I had not been using photography. So you were in, acknowledging that you were in this kind of, almost like this uh, abusive relationship, basically, where it was all of the things that you wanted it to be, who you wanted it to be, the friends that you needed to make, the me in any in media particularly, the schmoo, the person you had to become, you thought, to do the thing that you wanted to do. Um, I was doing that. And I think that if that incident hadn't happened, then I don't think I would have come to that conclusion. But it did. And it was basically about controlling that, like, violent lover, basically. About using that relationship productively. And, I th and I, it's, it's like... You know, there's sometimes, you know, you just, because I, I can remember that incident in that day, like, so vividly and so well. Maybe it was because of that treatment I had and stuff. But, like, each one of those kind of macro kind of decisions are life moments when, like, you know, like that, that you get on that train and you go that way or that bus or go that way or the doors close and thing. It's like each one of those things that led me onto that street corner that afternoon, I can put down to, I th with almost as much certainty as a human being can, into kind of perhaps just not taking control of the situation. Maybe that's to do with age, maybe that's to do with all of those things. But the move and to, to, to start afresh, to continue to work in a, um, in a Muslim, or wanting to continue to work in the Muslim world again, to move to Istanbul was an attempt by me to regain that control with the thing that you hold so dear but you know it's like this like violent like fireball you gotta come at it from a different angle Ooh. and that's what forced me and that when i did that i found that for the first time that photography rather than for me like being at the end of photography where it's so often violence and the extremes of the world but that's what I got into it. You know, that's how my, that's how I, you know, was really kind of inspired me. And now coming at it from another way kind of fired off the more creative part, the slower part, and the idea that, you know what, to have that kind of insight into the world and to be confronted with these massive things at a young age, like, it certainly ages you, but it, it enables you to think, I think, more clearly. And I just know that that, like, from just other things. And whenever something has happened, I remember being really annoyed by, a, um, by other photographers that had 
being caught or very nearly lost a life in, in Syria or got injured in Iraq. Or There was one young Italian photographer that I'd never met personally, but we were with each other around the situations. He eventually died in a trench in eastern Ukraine a couple of years ago, a guy called Andy Riccelli. And I remember thinking at that time, like, you motherfucker. Like, he was a great photographer. And actually, he did this amazing book on... Um, he didn't tell anyone about it. No one knew about it. But he had this other kind of life where he lived in Moscow for years and years and years. And he became like the personal photographer for like single women escorts. And he would take their picture in exchange for some money. But in the way that he would take their portrait for their social media profile, for their business. And then he kind of made like these lovely pictures of the carpets and the walls of these interiors and these women that were they're just beautiful. And it was like a sight to him. I was like... I was like, think you selfish bastard. Like, how could you do that? Why were you there? In you know, like these things that I, you know, I would, you know, but at the time, you know, maybe that would have been me. Maybe that could have been another host of any young photographer who had survived these, these battles and these wars and they just go on to the next and then suddenly without knowing it. So what came out of all of this was this project, Parallel State, right? Yeah, yeah. What came out of the last five years or since that instant. And I think actually, you know, the hardest thing actually to talk about now is that I didn't want to talk about that incident in April, in, in 2011 for a long time, because I didn't want to, um, I didn't want it to be my thing, right? I didn't want Understood, it to be yeah. thing of the thing. And mm. there was certainly with the kind of the high-profile-ness high, high of that um, incident at that time, I remember, in fact, I remember handing it to my, my girlfriend at the time to handle my emails and my, because the requests for interviews, for HBO documentaries, for books were just like constant. And I just couldn't, I didn't, do, didn't want to deal no, with it. I turned you myself reliving the moment over and over. Thing. And I got kind of increasingly annoyed with the people that did partake in those documentaries or those books. And I just couldn't see a reason for it because of, you know, because of like, it was just like, man, you know, it's about the people in the pictures. It's about being your, you know, how yeah. do you, you know, so, but I can't really escape. I can't really not escape about it. I can't really not talk about it because it is the context onto which this work, the parallel state exists. And so anyway, fuck it. <laughs> I'm telling you now. Uh, but that was, you know, to acknowledge it in a way and to say, yeah, it was a huge part of, of, of my life, of, of, of everything that I do. And it's kind of resulted in this book, forthcoming book, it's gonna be released in, in February, uh, The Parallel State, which is a project that started off as one thing in Istanbul at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, which was for me like a little bit of kind of like rehab. It was like, I found, we found like an apartment to live in Istanbul. There was a nice community of, uh, it was a great city anyway to begin with, but it's, there was a community of journalists there already um, doing, doing work of uh, friends or acquaintances that I knew. But it offered me an opportunity to do one project, which was at the time, was I just wanted to photograph uh, Turkish soap operas because Turkish soap operas, they still are. Um, but at that time in the 2010, 2011, 2012, they were the most watched TV programs in the world because of the audience, the, the Muslim audience, from the Balkans to Indonesia. And what Turkish soap operas projected 
onto the world was a kind of soft power strategy where it was a Turkish style of Islam, of secular Islam, where, you know, extramarital affairs, drinking, you know, violence, sex, affairs, gangsters, all of this kind of stuff was somehow being shorn, uh, like shoehorned into... Uh, Put through their filter. Exactly. And it just presented wealth and it presented kind of presented money it presented secularism it presented just aspirational fucking tv that to you know a working class or a middle class housewife watching from more conservative countries like saudi or to indonesia a utopia of of awesomeness of the things that are familiar with with you know the religion of mosques of locations of food of attitudes but it was being portrayed in a way and so my if you like my rehabilitation was to live cheap get to know istanbul and come at not only photography from another way but to begin to address this unhealthy relationship right that i was always aware and particularly in the islamic world that i was so often at the extremes of that as well the 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 cliches the stereotypes the grieving mothers the funerals the the angry, shouty, beardy men. You know, I was like, that was it. And I was coming at it from now, from this other thing where I was seeing the polar opposite. And it was just something that blew, equally blew my mind away. And I think it was just, I could turn up to this, to these sets at like seven in the morning, go with the crew on the minibus out to a corner of Istanbul that I would never, ever, ever have seen on a location in a house somewhere and could just get lost in this safe world. I knew that I wasn't going to get shot at. I didn't have to organize drivers. I could just I could just be and just take time. And I could see how um, this world, this soft power, this version of Islam was being reported. And as much as I always think about you know, the thing that I always worried, you know, like saying worrying about it was like, was I, was, were the pictures that I was taking, was it worth it? Like, what did my mum understand the complexities of an Egyptian revolution? You know, does anyone, could anyone, could any picture do that? And suddenly and now I just, I didn't have to do that anymore. I wasn't bothered. I didn't have to. What's not to understand about being on a fucking soap opera set? It's like, it's like, and that's how it started, man. And I could just turn up and fail. I could turn up, make bad pictures, it doesn't matter. Nobody was watching. I, like, you know, I could just do that. And I would have been perfectly happy with that project. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What's interesting to me about yeah. this parallel state is yeah. that within that seemingly disposable medium, you found some meaning and statement yeah. about the human yeah. condition. Yeah, exactly. It was about. It was about. I could see already, though, man. That I could see already that that um, that continuing or to focus on the idea of a screen, like what people watch on TV screens on screens, like that was important. And I knew it because, um, well, I knew no one else was working on it, but I knew it was something that I had seen. On the front line. On the front line. You'd lines. seen the consequences of people, exactly. look like, people looking like Rambo. Exactly, yeah. right? So I thought that that was really important, and I thought it was something that no one was addressing because of, because, you know, it they just... They couldn't join the dots, They couldn't probably. join the, right, they couldn't join the dots. So that's like trying to find this, this positive in this, this thing that happened the year before, two years before, and I was, it was, it was all right. That was all right by me. But, like, the thing that changed all that was that, that after promising, uh, you know, after promising everybody around me that I wouldn't get drawn to violence and well, moving Istanbul, Istanbul at the time, man, Turkey at the time, it's going to join the EU, holiday location. You know, everyone's happy. Erdogan, Tayyip Erdogan, the president is this reformer, this one guy that can, like, somehow have a peaceful amazing democracy in an Islamic nation, you know, unheard of, right, at the time, with the rest of the Middle East on fire, here was this one country that was standing out like this, like, giant beacon of, of hope and, and thing, and it was. And then the summer of 2013 happened, and it was those um, big protests over this park, this thing called Gezi Park in the centre. It, it was a dispute about green space, where the president wanted to kind of bulldoze down this like pissy little park in the center of in the center of town and put like an ottoman themed barracks and mosque and parking lot and shopping center on it and it annoyed everybody and so these things that it just quickly snowballed in that summer of 2013 to this like nationwide protest um to the government of turkey everybody's still fresh off the arab thing thinking is Tayyip Erdogan going to survive is this the next country to fall and then I, there I was, like, fucking living in it. Um, but, but I did see it in a different way. And I did see how other photographers were photographing it. You know, these protests happened in the centre of Istanbul. Um, much in kind of comparison into, like, where it kind of happens is, like, uh, it's like having a big protest around, like, Pimlico or something, you know? It wasn't like, it wasn't the seedy kind of all-encompassing. It was mostly unheadscarfed, pro-Western, very white Turks. It's okay to call it like white Turks, Western, coastal, middle-class elites, mostly. 
Um, and I saw the way that they were being represented by other photographers. It was the stone throwers. It was the kind of Arabic scarves around their face. It was tear gas canisters. It was, it was making it look like a, you know, like the Gaza Strip or another Arab revolution country. And obviously Turks are not Arabs. So I was really pissed off by that. I saw it and I just began photographing those protests with like a slightly bigger camera, a couple of flash like lights on it. And I remember consciously making the performance of this protest, the iPhoning, the glamorous girls, people that looked like actors, but were actually, you know, seemed possibly far too handsome to be in a protest and picking out those things. And I didn't, maybe I did not, I, did, I don't know if I did know it at the time, but I was consciously making it look like a performance. And so then at the end of 2013, I had this body of work from soap opera sets, and I had this body of work from a summer of protest. Tayyip Erdogan didn't step down. The protests were put down and everyone kind of got back on track to some degree. But there was a freakish, eerie similarity in what I'd seen on soap opera sets and the way in which the way in which I had chosen to photograph civil unrest again. And that's hence was the title. The, hence the title, The Parallel State. Um, and hence why I felt it was important to begin mixing those bodies of work together to really kind of address those things that I had been fascinated about was like, are we paying enough attention? Do we really know what's real? I know, and it's really, and I've spoken to colleagues that have, you know, that still, that work in Iraq now and, and Syria and stuff, and it's something that we all talk about between ourselves, but we all know that at some stage in the last few years or during, that things are happening because of your presence there. And that's a really, and that's a really uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable truth to know that 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 you affect the dynamic that of the you situation. affect the dynamic Absolutely. of the situation that you're not this fly that you there is no such thing as this truth teller which is why I think photojournalism is often kind of is in a bit of a pro, that term is often in a bit of a problematic area right now that everybody no matter if you're from a village in the away from an urban center if you're in the desert in Libya everybody knows the power of the internet, of social media, and of what photography or photographers turning up to a scene represent and what they can do. And I saw that in these protests that, or in war, like think about it, like, you know, we're trying to, the way that we try and make sense, the way that I try to make sense of the world to editors at the Wall Street Journal, to the New York Times, is that you have to make a, you have to make a story. Like who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators? If you can't do that in your photography, and if you watch the news uh, at 10 and that two or three minute thing that someone does, is that they're telling you a story. They have to simplify that story for anyone to care or understand what the fuck is going on. If they don't do that, then it, it's impossible. And I just saw that there were, like, it's just suddenly like this, this, this thing. I suddenly saw these protesters were, and they knew it, they were the underdogs, they were the victims, they knew how to hold themselves, present themselves, when to behave such and such or when to think. I would see people change, maybe they were going to throw a stone but they put it down. 
if I turned up close to them. And it was like that type of performance, this acknowledgement of a dance between media and thingy that, that, uh, that between media and the people in a place of social unrest, that that was going on. And that's how it started. So I'm looking at this picture in here. What's, yeah. What is this? This is like a teaser for your yeah, project. Yeah, this is like a little uh, zine teaser, a prequel, if you will, to the main to the main event to the book coming out in in February. And we did this to support an exhibition of the work that was held in France this summer. And um, where I think that the the idea that this project could sustain myself over five years came from was an incident in the summer of 2013. This bit where I was struggling to kind of like where I was, trying, like, I was trying to think, I was like, how would the old me kind of view this? They'd think, fucking hell, like, he got a bit of a knock on the head in Libya and now he's turned into this fucking weird dude. You know, what the fuck is on with him? You know, like that thing. But it made sense to me because on the, one of the summer nights of 2013, during a, a night in protesting where these environmental, most of the environmental protests at that time were squaring off against riot police, tear gas, rubber bullets, the whole the whole thing was happening. There was a group of individuals who were sitting on the grass, the, the garden of the, um, of the Dolma Bache Palace. It's where um, Ataturk used to live when he was in Istanbul in the 20s, the, the, founder, of, the founder of Turkey. And um, this group, he was recovering from some tear gas. So when you recover from tear gas, you know, your eyes, your eyes really kind of burn a little bit. You take some time out. You throw some kind of milk on you or some vinegar water and stuff and it dissipates. But in the moments that I was walking through those gardens, this group and this young man who had his shirt kind of held out, um, his white T-shirt on, his friends pushed him on the grass, ripped his shirt open, and he kind of presented himself to me as this victim, right? And... I wasn't actually working on assignment for anyone at that time. Um, I was just doing it because it was just down the road from where I was living, so I was just photographing it. Um, but they recognised, like, in me, and it's weird, like, I still think about, like, how amazing this moment was, like, how complex this moment was. Like, they recognised in a split second or two that I was the photographer, the media pen, and that I was there to tell their story of being the victim, of the underdog, of being vastly outnumbered by these stormtrooper police and that they were there. And they threw themselves on the ground and he presented it to it. And if that was the previous version, I would never have taken that picture. I couldn't have possibly have taken it, lived with myself or captioned it in a way that could even begin to explain like that. I, in, in essence, I would have to lie to the editors or the picture and say that that was a genuine moment when I knew it wasn't. But I took that picture anyway because I had this camera and these two flashes and I, and I made him look like this, this heroic, befallen victim. And it's kind of a sexy picture. It's, there's the kind of his friends who are helping him on the ground. He's kind of this like muscular dude with veins kind of bulging. There's a good-looking girl like kneeling next to him with tight skinny jeans on and red nail varnish kind of helping him. He looks kind of like a Jesus kind of figure and his chest is open and it's, it's a kind of, it is kind of a weird picture to look at and in essence it seems too good to be true, which it was. And then so fast forward a few months to the, to the editing of, uh, of the work and then I suddenly see 
in my kind of work from the soap opera sets, where I was on set at this big budget um, program called As Time Goes By, and there was this dead actress on the floor with her arm cast in the same direction, blood kind of coming down from her nose. She's looking slightly off camera. It's the same crop, it's the same lens. Life imitating art. Yeah. We're talking? yeah. And I began showing it to friends and without a caption, without telling people what to think about it. And people couldn't figure out if that picture of the dead soap actress was yeah. from the protest. And likewise, they couldn't tell that that guy on the grass was from a real life moment. And I think it was in that moment, like we were saying earlier when we were talking about this, like the idea, like the contact sheet of the editing of showing that round to some people that I trusted and looked at, I hadn't gone crazy. That there was, it was worth pursuing. pursuing that. And I just began to assemble then some pictures that I felt kind of were contemporary from the soap opera sets and from daily real life of political, social protests on the street. And something just began to happen. It began to make... It began Just by juxtaposing, juxtaposing the, the, images. the images. They told another they story. They told another story. And oh, brilliant. And that's how, basically, from 2012 to 2017, I, um, I worked in, in, in Turkey. And I wanted, it to, I wanted to call it the parallel state for a long time. But the reason why it's actually called the parallel state, apart from it seeming like a, a science fiction movie, is that Turkey, for a long, long time... Um, genuinely has had a parallel state. And that's where I think the, this kind of links with, you know, kind of certain Trumpy type things or 2017 or how we think about the world now is that Turkey did have a, a, um, a deep state, a parallel structure since the 50s, um, kind of units set up by NATO to kind of uh, stop any communist threat that would come down. So these units, these trained people would come up and resist. Anyway, that, ne that threat never happened. But this shadow bureaucracy, this shadow separation of maybe the army who felt that they were the kind of the guardians of secular Turkey, you know, should the pendulum swing, swing too close way. to the mosque, they would intervene. And they did regularly. One coup every 10 years, roughly, since the 50s. And then on July 17th last summer, the army intervened again and they tried to overthrow the government of, of Tayyip Erdogan. And Tayyip Erdogan very famously at that night in the middle of the summer kind of appeared on FaceTime on his own, on, in CNN Turk, kind of begging for his life and begging people to come out onto the streets and protest and save Turkey from a, from a coup. The, coup. the coup failed and it was down to the fact of a very real, of a hidden enemy, of those people that you can't see that they're amongst us suddenly rising up and wanting to overthrow. And then I had the reason, I had a reason to stop the project. I had a reason to begin to put in all these layers. And it wasn't like a normal story, like I was working before, because it didn't really have a beginning. It didn't really have like, like all of those things that I held, like, you know, and held dear, the facts, you know, these kind it's of... It's always shifting. It's shifting, man, you know? It was like suddenly now, just like, uh, like I was free to like interpret. I felt like I could interpret events more. I felt that I could control how I wanted you to look at the work. I could control what to point the viewer's attention to. 
I wanted to play with the idea that the audience didn't know if some of these pictures were from the sets of soap operas or that they were from real life. I loved showing you a different side of Islam. I loved showing you kind of wealth and beauty and sex to some degree. There's a little bit of sexuality in the work, which is something that for someone that's worked in the Middle East for so long, like I cannot get close to women generally because they're generally off guard or harder to get to. It takes a lot. You can't get a single man to be there and photographing in women's specific spaces. It's very hard. And so this, this, this project enabled me to do that and enabled me to kind of take control of what I wanted to say. And I still think it's kind of a little bit kind, yeah, a little bit kind of complex. You just need to know a little few things to get into the project. And, and, and ultimately what I love most about kind of showing people just this early version and, and, and some work, um, some book dummies and stuff, is that it's so nice seeing people um, make up their own mind about what they're looking at. There's no flags, there's no mosques, there's no burning buildings, there's no angry, screaming, beardy men, there's no wailing mothers, there's no funerals, but all of those things I was part of, all of those things did happen. I was always there, but for the of, of really a very kind of violent five years in, in, in Turkey. But I pointed the camera the other way. I looked at other things. I began to think about how useful my pictures were. And, and I just wanted people to, to just like engage and not scroll. I wanted people to be like seduced by beauty in a ph photograph, to not kind of know what they're looking at and so that's how this world, the parallel state, emerged. I kind of relied on those things that, you know, we relied on like colour tone and a more cinematic kind of thinking about photography. Why does photography or photojournalism say it has to start there and end there? Why can't I just go all David Lynch on it and like turn it into something more ambiguous? What happens if you take the things that you think you know about Istanbul or Turkey, you've never been there, the Bosphorus, the mosques, the food, the clothes people wear, what happens if you take that away? What happens? And so I just, you know, and, and in a way it is a, it acknowledges the screen. It acknowledges, I hope, um, I hope, I mean, I hope it does, uh, how complex the world is. Um, and I think it just, man, I just, I just hope that it doesn't actually, at the end of the day, man, I thought about this and this whole thing of like trying to, how to like photograph things that people, outside of anybody's normal life. Like, why care about Turkey? Why care about Egypt? Why care about Libya? People have got other shit to be getting on with their lives. People like music, people like going surfing, people like following other stuff. And I think that this, for the first time, I found, I think I found that it may well be set in Turkey, but the things that it talks about are things that like directly affect us now in 2017 and 2018. I think that the feeling you get from it, if you don't show violence, if you don't show dead bodies, if you don't show those image tropes, it makes it more approachable in a way. It doesn't turn you off. You get turned into it, turned onto it. And you sort of begin to appreciate the shades of grey. Yeah, not so black exactly. And white. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It sounds like, yeah. like a liberating experience for you. It was liberating. It's been hard though, man. It's been really, it's been really hard to kind of put these things together and wrestling with these, like, yeah, wrestling with these, these, 
events past 2011, what to do with them. It like it it like at times I do feel like there is it's it's inbuilt, but like this this pressure to um, to say something from that moment, you know, to say something from that event, like. Sorry, how old are you again now? Thirty-four now. Yeah, twenty-six. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So, I'm curious. After the parallel state, yeah. what would you do next? Have you got any idea? No, I don't actually. And it's one of those things that I like, always kind of thought about. Like, you know, uh, I mean, you know, should have the next project cooking. Should have this, but the whole thing about this. This was such a like knowing what went into this, this work, and where it came from. I can't, I, like, it's kind of, I actually kind of recognising that it can't be replicated again in a, way, in a way that the events that led up to it are impossible to, to replicate and I wouldn't want to replicate them. I just know that I think the things that I want to talk about or that I get kind of inspired by are the, the links and how the screen, a screen, and I mean a TV screen, a mobile phone screen, I mean social media, how those very kind of digital concepts, this online life we have, this other identity that everybody has. And I just know that I just want to be able to comment on that because I think that just like that initial like kind of, um, you know, that kind of willingness, that link between myself and young people in that young Egyptians in their 20s kind of causing revolutions and protests through social media. Uh, I feel like that that could be the thing that I want to talk about for the future. It might not mean ever having to, you know, to to go to, to go to war zone again because it's it's it something manifests else. Itself in it manifests different itself ways all over the place, exactly. Yeah. And I think that that, if anything, that's what I would I would love to get kind of thrown into. But with anything that I've done so far, it has to come from like this deep, you have to feel creative again, you know? And I can't like, I don't want, like I said, I don't want any, like an explosion to make creative, but it's like, I have to find that creativity from somewhere to read something, to see somebody, to like, you know, to talk to someone. Like it has to come from within somehow. Through everything you've experienced yeah. and seen in film, how does that impact the way you conduct yourself back at home mm. in your day-to-day -day life back in the UK? Mm -hmm. um, I'd say that um, I think being back home now with, yeah, back in the UK, um, back in the, the region of the UK, Cornwall, where, where I grew up, but I, but I left because I wanted to see the world. I've got a, a young daughter now, um, Agnes, and it's funny, it's the, the, everything that has kind of gone into making of me up to that point um i do feel like a kind of um a natural willingness to kind of want to want to protect your offspring uh protect agnes from certain things but at the same time feel confident enough that i can explain and talk through her and talk through these things um but it's funny that i, I still fight like that kind of being like i don't kind of there's not a lot that like stresses me out, right? In a way that like a lot of stresses me out that where like it's it's kind of of course the normal stuff, money worries, the bills, all of that kind of things. But like seeing, it's like it gives you a weird prepared 
kind they of you're prepared perspective perspective like you're prepared that take it would have to be something really catastrophic to get me kind of worried world. or to kind of like stress me out a little bit and i think once you have kind of have that experience you just kind of learn to ultimately i think going through that coming out of it i don't think i was that chilled when i was younger but actually now i do think i am like a bit more relaxed and chilled about daily life I don't not worrying so much about being that famous war photographer or feeling like I have to constantly get on a plane to go somewhere to validate myself. You know, I don't feel as I have to prove anything. But yeah, I feel as though yeah, I don't have to um, prove anything to anyone else. Um, that proving thing happened far earlier than I ever thought it would do, um, and everything all around that. And it's something that I kind of didn't want. I never thought I'd be the guy to get married and have kids because that would get in the way of my life, of being a guy that sacrifices everything to go in and tell these stories and to hell with everybody and everything around me. Now I like seeing what happens if, when that incident happened in Libya, if I didn't have a family around me to support me, to help me recuperate, to feed me. All of those things, that family that I kind of thought I did, and there were certain, you know, the photography family, like they weren't so helpful when it came to in the end of it. You find out who your enemies and your friends are, and who are real friends in moments in your need. And now, as having a family of my own, it's kind of reassuring to know that you're actually part of something um, that's real, and that you can, um, you know, that you have the power to kind of. Shape and to influence and to guide, and to pass on that crazy weird experience of that what I've had so far onto like onto a, a daughter, which is something like is it blows me away every day. And it is it is amazing that we did have Agnes because from the the injuries and stuff, we are kind of told that it would be very hard to have to have kids. So she is a like you know she is a miracle. So it's kind of you know all of those things make make you realize the important things in all of this like what it's all about man i think yeah like family and um just being there and just being present because i don't think i was that present before Brilliant. <laughs> fucking hell yeah so, i'm not very damn man yeah. damn so much there yeah <laughs> yeah give that to the editor yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah so yeah. I'm sur- if you're not having done it, yeah. I think I don't know, and I can understand why you yeah. might not want to. to yeah. Kind of, kind of yeah. An yeah, well, yeah. Again, the story becomes about him, and yeah. that's it when it all gets twisted, it becomes like you're selling this thing, and you might have been defined by it mm-hmm. going forward. Right? Yeah, yeah. That I think why. So why I didn't? You got to say it though, haven't you? No, no. Go on, go on. Right, yeah. Go on, do that. It's, it's yeah. about family in the end, but why? Yeah. Go on. It's about family. I think going back to the to the, the family aspect of, of, uh, of having a family in this very kind of tough job or this environment is important because I knew that when I got fucked up that if I didn't have that family around me, then it truly would be, like I w- this work, new work wouldn't exist, that there wouldn't be anything around it um, because there's no grounding and you kind of then... I've seen it with other friends and colleagues that don't have close family that then get attached to the wrong type of crowd and like fall off 
the radar have issues, they can't pick up the camera and they never make work again. And all of these things, I was really conscious that I didn't want to do that. And so why I declined initially or just didn't respond to emails that wanted to know about the events of that time from like documentary crews in like Bulgaria to HBO documentaries to book requests was that for me to for me to kind of come back to help me kind of get over and get to terms with that thing is that I had to separate that industry from from me so I had to distance that but at the same time I felt that the things and the people that did need speaking to um, and talking through were the people that were closest to Tim and Chris at that time. So I went out of my way to speak to um, uh, Chris's, uh, um, to Tim's girlfriend at the time there, um, Adil. And uh, that was a huge moment for me. And I remember, um, it was in Brixton actually. Uh, It was, um, she was in, uh, in London. I was staying with friends um, in Brixton for that specific reason. It was just kind of after Christmas or New Year. And I remember meeting her in, um, in a cafe on uh, Cold Arbor Lane. Uh, it's called Duck Egg Cafe, right up there at the top. Um, having breakfast and telling her as much detail and as much info that I could possibly remember of that time. And importantly, about how Tim's attitude was that day to him saying about him wanting to be the leader of that group and take us out that time. And it was really hard and there were lots of tears, but it was important and I could see it was important for her um, to do that. And then in 2012, I went to New York and I spoke to some of Chris's friends, colleagues, people that were closest to him and explained as much as I could remember on that day as well. In the intervening kind of, in the few months, uh, Tim had kind of been posthumously kind of accepted into Magnum, but to my kind of horror, um, the Magnum photo agency, to my horror, the pictures that were in the archive from Libya were uncaptioned and undetailed. So I worked with uh, a woman called Susan Mizellis and the team at Magnum to caption his work and to put a, a date and a and exactly the 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 time and the locations that the images that he made off his, his negatives were correctly captioned and archived. I was like, it was horrifying to me that those pictures should be in an archive and uncategorized. And so for me, like that thing about making things right uh, to the people that were not, to the people and to the things and to the family around Tim and Chris at that time were really important to me. So that idea of separating the business and dealing with the, the, the kind of amongst all the fury and the, the focus on that one event to put those things right with his friends and family first. And that helped me. Um, and that helped, man. I mean, that helped in the, in, in the right well, way. The healing process. In the well. healing process. And it, and it just, you know, it just made you, it just, it made you realize at the end of the day that, yeah, that, that, uh, that family, that putting those things front and center a little bit from you know moving forward that speaking to people that recognizing the enormity of that event but being able to talk about it frame it not you know wanting to kind of just come out to, but to those people off the record was was the thing that drove me to to kind of doing that so that's you know i guess that's that's a, a link back to family at the end of the day you know i guess that's the thing the link back to family um and 
I think if anything, you know, move forward with like having my own with Agnes now or anything like that, whatever she decides to do or move forward and things like that or whatever she wants to to do, like, um, or if anything should kind of happen to her, if she even kind of happen, you know, kind of be in photography or this kind of a, a, a life or a career that she loves passionately and she loves the most, you know, as a father, as a parent, I would want to know um, what happened and what she does to her friends or the people that were around her, you know. I'd, you know, want to know that they, you know, I think they wanted to know that Tim and Chris like were doing what they loved doing, and um, I think I would want that from 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 people that were were there, like un you know unfiltered, not through a TV interview, not through a a documentary, not through kind of being part of stuff, but to to um, to just Place to be honesty. honest, yeah, yeah, to be honest, man, yeah. So making it right, yeah, that was it, and that was part of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to the first series of Joining the Dots. It's been an absolute blast and we hope you'll join us for the second series, which is in production as we speak. Thanks to all our friends and workmates who made this possible, especially the special human being and sonic alchemist that is Rob Taliesin Owen. Thanks also to the free-thinking Hut publisher and my old mate, Vince Medeiros, as well as the Huck editorial team, headed up by the brilliant Andrea Kurland. That's Ben Cook, Dom Sisley, Niall Flynn and Ben Smoke. Thanks also to the original Rebel Dread, Don Letts, as well as the elusive Pete Kellett and Luke Matthews. This has been a Huck production, and the first season of Joining the Dots was brought to you in association with Sides. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.